Hello all and welcome to episode 40 of Geeks and Games. This is the very first episode of our second season. Let's get a round of applause for the first season. You're welcome. It, it was a good one. We had our highs, we had our lows, we had our pesky USBs, but we are finally back. The reason it took so you long... You had your pesky USBs. <laughs> yeah, you didn't. Um, the reason it took so long to go back to our regular episodes was just because I needed to finish up all my school stuff for the year. Now I feel pretty confident that we can get back into the swing of things. Sad thing is, right after this one comes out, we'll have to take another break because Yoshimitsu and I are both going on a retreat from the july 2nd through the 12th so don't expect anything between those dates and let's see there is a before we get into the meat of the episode there is a lot of news like as you can imagine we've been away for nearly a month so of course there's going to be a lot of build up so first off for nintendo switch online pinball for the nes and Rival Turf and Congo Keeper for the Super Nintendo are added to the Switch Online base service, as was Pokemon Snap to the expansion. At this point, I don't understand why Switch Online is doing this. Like, there is this policy that lots of game companies have done with games in the past, and I'm not a big fan of where they'll release a game, or in this case, service, unfinished, and then release lots of the content later over time to sort of maintain interest. But I just want to play... The entire game, or in this case, all the games on the surface at once, in Mario RPG and Chrono Trigger are still not there, so I don't know what the deal is. It is nice to have the original pinball game. That means I think the only black box NES game made by Nintendo from the launch we still don't have yet is Mock Rider. Don't know why that one's not there. It's kind of weird. And yeah, the original Pokemon Snap, of course, the new Pokemon Snap released for the Switch last year, so it's nice to see the original coming. While E3 is not happening this year, a lot of game companies have sort of made their own convention. And I think Jeff Keighley, who is like the head of Bethesda or something, he worked a lot on Skyrim, I think. He had organized this thing called Summer Game Fest, which was another way for companies to sort of showcase games they were making. But Sony and Microsoft each held their own conferences for what they have in store. So what they announced on their, Sony announced on their State of Play conference, which happened on June 2nd, that Final Fantasy 16 was given an official release date of summer 2023. A remake was announced for Resident Evil 4. I'd seen some people annoyed that they're making a remake since a lot of people think that Resident Evil 4, the original, is like the perfect video game. Street Fighter 6 had some gameplay revealed and it is also getting a 2023 release. Um, Horizon Call of the Mountain, which I think is the what third game in the Horizon? No, it's not the third game. It's a spinoff to the main series. It is a PlayStation VR 2 exclusive that was announced. And the Callisto Protocol, which is some new game that I hadn't heard of, is also getting a December 2022 release. I, I do, I think I did see an issue of a gaming magazine on, on a newsstand that was like an issue all about this. Looks kind of interesting, I suppose. Also, they announced something about Starfield or whatever. I don't care. That game's been in development for a long time. I don't really care. And, you know, plus I don't have any modern consoles except for a switch so i don't care about playstation and xbox games too much either um sega um just announced that they're making a sequel to the genesis mini console and i can't remember what games on it but it's quite a bit i hope that it might also have some cd and 32x games it 
might from what I've heard, but I'm not too sure. In terms of Nintendo Directs, so the first Nintendo Direct I, reaction I did is our most popular episode still. And whenever Nintendo does one, you bet your bottom dollar I'll be covering that one. It has to be a main Direct, though, not like an indie Direct, a mini Direct, or one focused on a specific game. Because recently there was a Xenoblade Chronicles 3 Direct that I didn't really mind. I just really want a mainstream Nintendo Direct. From what I've heard, there have been a lot of prevalent rumors that it will happen the 28th or the 29th. And if so, I will release it the day of, possibly a few hours after, because... To be honest, it's really quick to edit those because it, I just keep the reaction as is and then trim the bits around. Kind of easy. Oh, another thing I'd mentioned, I'm sorry if we startled you with our new intro music. We're just trying to evade copyright, and that was a little ditty I had composed that you might remember from hearing in the finale episode of Geeks and Games Season 1. Oh, and one last thing for the Nintendo Direct. I have made a bingo chart. I think I posted it to the Discord server. Sorry if it's a little compressed. But that was the way I had to port it because Discord wouldn't let me upload the original Photoshop file since it was too large. I mean, it wasn't a Photoshop file. It was like a PDF of that Photoshop image. So, yeah, feel free to play along if you want whenever that comes out. Um, I feel like I've included some popular choices, some realistic choices, and some wishful thinking. Yeah. Uh, quick comment on that. Yeah. Um, just about on the bingo thing, I saw you had a the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. Mm -hmm. uh, two things on that. One, I actually got to play that recently. It's a lot of fun. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, up to six players, which is pretty crazy. But two, I didn't Nintendo actually have anything to do with that because were they the ones that released that actually? Because I know Dotemu was the ones making it because they, they did Streets of Rage for it. I've I think... kept an eye on them since then. I think Konami either officially licensed out the franchise or released it. And yes, I do know it's made by the same people that made Streets of Rage 4, so they're resurrecting a lot of popular dead beat-em-up franchises. And they... Dead? Well, semi-dead. just call Streets of Rage 4 dead? No, they revived a franchise that was dead. So... No, I know. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but... How dare you? They also did, like, a remaster of, what was it, Alec? It was either one of the Alex Kid games, or it was, like, Monster Boy in yeah, they, they did Wonderland. Wonderboy and the Dragon Trap is what oh, it was called. That, that one also looks pretty good, but I haven't gotten a chance to play it. So we'll see what they revive next. I don't know, maybe the Simpsons Arcade game. That one was a pretty popular one that I think only saw a real re-release on the Xbox Live Arcade Store and then just got delisted relatively. Michael quickly. Jackson's Moonwalker. That's what they should do. I don't know how you'd revamp that. That was just a standalone game, though. I mean, you it's know, actually quite fun. Speaking of that, um, one that's kind of a reason that Sonic Three hasn't seen too many re-releases in collections or compilations is because I think the music was composed by Michael Jackson, but there's like a lot of debate over whether that's true or not. But he did have a hand in it, supposedly. Yeah. Similarly to Miss Pac-Man, weird copyright issues kind of leave it in a place where it's not re-released terribly often. Email us and let us know if you've ever played Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, because it's really a lot of fun to punch someone in the face and at the same time just have the sound effect be. <laughs> well, okay, yes, please like do. That. I think that was okay, a launch that, game that... for the Genesis, actually. Um, it was fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, Nintendo did their Xenoblade Direct, I think, yesterday. So it's the it's the 22nd today, and I think they held it earlier today, actually. So 
you're probably listening to this long after it's being recorded, depending on how long it takes me to edit. Oh my gosh, it is the 22nd. I'm so used to recording on Saturdays. Oh my goodness. Oh, well, you know, we kind of have to work around whatever works for us. since you know, since it's the summer, dates have kind of opened up a little more. Like with the Sony State of Play conference, Microsoft also held an expo. It was the Microsoft Bethesda something. I can't remember what it was called. But Hollow Knight Silk Song was mentioned that when it was released, it would be added to Game Pass, which, I mean, it's nice that it was covered at all, but like the developers of Hollow Knight Silk Song have given us literally no news on the game at all since 2019. I mean, I suppose they're hard at work or whatever, but like any update, a notification that they're alive or something, that would be nice. Honestly, I'm fine if they take a while to make Silk Song because I still haven't played the first one and I really want to. It looks really good. Yeah, I'll have to. Me too. I need to get on that. Um, A new first-person shooter that the creators of Rick and Morty worked on called High on Life. I think um, the cover looked interesting because it's like an astronaut holding a flower. So, interesting. Um, The next Forza game was announced. It's just called Forza Motorsport. I think it's like a reboot. Um, Judging by the name, that is most likely what it is. It, it was announced to be releasing in summer of 2023. Overwatch 2 was also confirmed to have its final release date as October 4th, and it's free to play, so there will be a billion microtransactions. I don't know about you, but I'd rather pay for a regular game instead of getting one for free and having an indeterminate amount of purchasable stuff to progress. But whatever, it's a business model that clearly led to Fortnite working really well. Um, another game was announced called cocoon a space adventure game kind of reminds me of the horror alien franchise and lastly and most importantly in my opinion the fourth minecraft spinoff was announced it's called minecraft legend and it's going to be a hack and slash or action rpg i think yeah action rpg sums it up pretty well it's kind of cool it Um, looks interesting it's got a nice style to it it's um but we haven't seen very much of it, so looking mm-hmm. forward to that. And it's going to have a lot of lore implications for what people do in-game, I think. And by fourth Minecraft spinoff, I mean following Minecraft Story Mode, Dungeons, and Minecraft Earth, which lasted a really short amount of time, and I never got to play that one. Unfortunate, um, too. It looked really good, enjoyable. This next one isn't gaming-related, but it's something important I wanted to share. So um, there's this YouTuber I w- watch named pro rana burger who has he only has like eighty thousand subscribers but i had sent him some fan art since he displays fan art at the end of each of his videos and he included some fan art i had created in one of them so there was this video he had made a while ago where was he and one of his friends going into walmart and his friend had taken this basketball smacked it on the ground and then it flew up into the ceiling and one of the walmart ceiling tiles fell onto the floor so as a joke, I made a Lego model in Mecha Bricks of his friend having a boxing match with said Walmart ceiling tile. And so I was really, I was honored to have been included in, yeah, massive shout outs to him and his channel. He's mainly known for making Diary of a Wimpy Kid stuff, but I think his other content's good. Another important Final Fantasy thing was announced too. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth was announced so that is part two of the final fantasy 7 remake series and they're revealing it now because this year is the 25th anniversary of final fantasy 7 so it's going to be a three-parter because the first part 
of Final Fantasy VII Remake, which just called Final Fantasy VII Remake and released in 2020. And so this is the second bit. Next is Atari Mania, which is a twist on Atari's classic games where you play as a keeper of a video game museum and you have to go inside these games and protect them from something. It looks interesting. I haven't seen Atari do anything interesting and in like, I mean, they haven't done anything interesting in, I don't know, a few decades. <laughs> I don't understand why they even exist anymore, aside from just to promote their old legacy content, because it seems like they do nothing new. And last announcement is for Geeks and Games and Geeks and Films as well. Um, I want to implement a grading change whenever we're covering films because I feel like letter grades are a little too odd and ambiguous because I think they can mean different things to different people. Um, so I'm changing it to a out of 10 system. So if you really liked a movie, it's your favorite, rate it 10 out of 10, but it is the ugliest, nastiest piece of drivel you simply cannot stand you can rate it a zero out of ten so sounds good it is now time to get into the meat of the episode and so yoshimitsu and i have each selected a game or in my case game series to cover for the show game series that i will be covering is the rhythm heaven series so i feel like it is one of the most niche um yet kind of famous series that Nintendo has made. So there have been four entries of it. So there was Rhythm 10 Goku, which released for the Game Boy Advance, which, but it also saw an arcade port made by Sega in the original Game Boy Advance version of it, released August 3rd, 2006. The second game in the series, the first one to come to the United States for the DS was just called Rhythm Heaven, and it released July 31st, 2008 in Japan, came to the US April 5th of 2009. The third game, in my, in my opinion, the best, Rhythm Heaven Fever, released on the Wii July 21st, 2011, and then came to the U.S. February 13th of 2012. And the last and most recent game in the series is Rhythm Heaven Mega Mix, which released for the 3DS June 11th, 2015, and came to the U.S., though not in cartridge form, only released on the eShop on June 15th, 2016. Now, before we get into talking about the series, there is an important disclaimer I would like to say. So... The series received popularity near as the pandemic had started because more people had sort of started to get into it and fan animations like Rhythm Heaven Reanimated got really popular. And because of this, the Rhythm Heaven games, especially Fever, are like crazy expensive. The only reason I was able to play Rhythm Heaven Fever at all was because my library had a copy of it. So that was how I was able to play it through some miracles. Though sadly, if you want to play an original copy of it, you're going to have to shell out with like 90 bucks for it, 70 to $90. It's crazy. Post-production Tiger here. I would like to point out that if you have a Wii U, you can get Rhythm Heaven Fever on the Wii U eShop for $20, though you won't be able to do that for too much longer since the eShop will be closing down in February of 2023. The other three games aren't terrible, although, um, if you want to play one, I suggest Megamix since it's more of a collection and you can buy it for $30 on the Nintendo 3DS eShop, which I recommend doing before the eShop closes. You currently cannot use credit cards, but you can use eShop gift cards and I suggest buying it before the 3DS eShop closes down entirely next February. And so the origin behind this series was that um, 
the Japanese musician Sunku had an idea to create a music video game. So he went to Nintendo and was like, hey, I'm a musician. You guys are gamers. I want to make a music video game. But because you know a lot about video games and not a lot about music, I'm going to teach you how. So before any development actually commenced on the game series, he had the developers take dance lessons to hone in their sense of rhythm. And when he deemed them ready, they started development on it for the Game Boy Advance. However, the game came out pretty late in the Game Boy Advance's lifetime, so they chose not to localize it. And it was the last official Game Boy Advance released first party made by Nintendo. I think Mother 3 was the second to last. They're both good games with somewhat of a rhythm-oriented mechanic that released in Japan only late in the Game Boy Advance's lifespan. Because- On that topic, I will say briefly, Mother 3 is interesting because that mechanic kind of becomes irrelevant as you get later in the game and you learn stuff like magic attacks and can buy things like bombs and missiles. So... Yeah, the mechanic. It's, it's I'm kind of unfortunate, about. but I mean, it does exist. But again, as you go later into the game, you almost never use a normal attack. Hmm. So. Yeah, but the the mechanic I was talking about for our listeners who may not be familiar is that if you tap the attack button in Mother Three, you can get extra hit points for attacking on time with the beat. So yeah. we may mention that up to sixteen episode. hits. Let's see. So. The Rhythm Heaven series goes by many different names, depending on where you live in the world. And I know this because um, a shocking only 70% of our listeners are actually from the U.S. Nearly 30% of our listenership is in the United Kingdom. So shout outs to you guys for listening. We're very pleased to have reached overseas. So that series is called Rhythm Paradise in Europe. Rhythm 10 Goku in... Japan, and then it goes by another name in Korea, but I can't remember what it was. Post-production Tiger here again in Korea. The series is called Lidium Sisang. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that very wrong, which translates to Rhythm World. And Rhythm Heaven Fever, the Wii game, is especially odd because it goes by a lot of different names. But like I said, I'm going to start with the Game Boy Advance version. So the art design for this series was led by Ko Takeuchi, who also developed the art style for the WarioWare series. The first game, which was developed by a Nintendo SPD and published by Nintendo, was Japanese exclusive, like I had said earlier. And the reason they released it on the Game Boy Advance instead of the DS was because they knew the hardware better and it was easier to program for it. So each game has a base selection of games. So it works, you play four rhythm games and then you play a remix. So, and the remix sort of takes the games and then unites them under a theme such as a tropical theme, a hard rock theme, traditional Japanese. These are all themes that have been used in actual remixes in the series. Um, The game starts with a rhythm test, which determines your natural sense of timing designed to help you with your rhythm sense. Though with Fever, it also works as a way to work the game with your TV's input lag. The game uses the A and B buttons and occasionally shoulder buttons to use as inputs. Some games like Toss Boys incorporate the button layout into the actual minigame. So the D-pad is also used like the with the A and B buttons sometimes as well because there's another game called trampolining or something. One thing I did forget to mention was other than the 
regular Game Boy Advance version, like I said, this did also have an arcade port, which was developed by Sega and does look a little different. So the way the mini games work is not in a score arcade based system like with other more familiar rhythm games. So the game determines your success rate and gives you one of three scores. Try again. Okay. Or superb. And if you get the superb ranking on a mini game, you have the option to play through it with to play through it perfectly with no missed inputs. And if you do that, you earn a reward. Um, a numerical point system was implemented alongside the scores in Mega Mix. Some notable mini games in Tengoku, some of which define the series, some of which I just like personally include Karate Man, which was, has been used in every single iteration of uh, the Rhythm Heaven franchise. You basically somebody throws stuff at you if as your Karate Man, and you just have to punch it on time with the beat. What's weird is this mini game specifically in Tengoku has like a heart system where you have to hit. Um, the the white pails in a row and then you have to fill up the heart meter on the side until it turns gold and then you can only hit rocks if you have your heart meter filled up and that is the only game in the series that uses a mechanic like that even future iterations of Karate Man never came back to that um, the next game that I really like is Rhythm Tweezers or some people have translated it as Veg to Pull for English fan translations of it so these hairs pop up on like turnips with faces and you have to pluck them to the beat. Yeah, it's funny. The second one has a really weird rhythm input that is really hard to nail. Oh, by the way, this is the only game in the series I haven't quote unquote played. Um, by that, I mean, I've only played some of it through an emulator and the input lag was terrible and the game kept like stuttering and screeching because I was... Also playing it through a browser window instead of actually downloading it, even though I did try downloading it and it worked a little better. Um, I don't feel too good about emulating games in general. I wouldn't really recommend. If there's a game you really want and you really want to emulate it, I guess that's fine. But my recommendation is instead to play a different game that you can access more easily. Um, next is the Clappy Trio, which is one of those games in the series where it's like monkey see monkey do where you're sort of given a series of commands and just have to go along with it so in this case there are three monkeys i think wearing wigs in a row and two people clap in a specific rhythm before you and you have to be the third one to sort of match it so for example you get a beat that goes and then you have to match that with so all together it sounds like that's kind of the best way I can explain it. It works better if you watch a playthrough of it. The next game I would like to discuss is Tap Trial. And so this is a game where you play as a girl who is tap dancing alongside a couple of monkeys. And monkeys in general are in a lot of mini games in the series. And they're, they're very cute monkeys. So it's understandable why they're like the mascot for the series. There's just a regular tap. There's a series of double taps, three taps in a row, and then like a jump tap. Uh, next is Space Dance. So this uh, this one's interesting because when it was localized for Mega Mix, they had changed the commands. You're the command turn right. You have to use the right the button on the D pad to move right, and then you hear Let's sit down. You're supposed to push the bottom button on the D pad to sit down, and then on pu 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 punch, you have to hit the A button to punch on that. Last note of the beat.
post-production Tiger here again. I forgot to note that in the American version of Megamix, turn, the turn right command for Space Dance is replaced with the line and pose and is read by a different narrator. I don't know why they changed that when the original reading could have worked. Even though Rhythm 10 Goku was a Japanese game, they still used English audio for it. I know these sound really weird by the way I'm describing them, and to be honest, it is a weird little series. It definitely has a lot of quirks, but I still recommend it. Sorry if my audio gets all weird. This happens a lot when I'm recording with Zoom. And another game I would like to mention is the Bon Odori. I really like the music for this one. It's like you um, play a sort of um, girls doing a dance at a festival, and then you have to clap to the beat. And there's something about the music for that one that I just really enjoy, and it's kind of a shame that it wasn't implemented into later games in the series. Oh, and this was also the first game to introduce the Wandering Samurai, who is also in every entry in the series, although in the one for the DS, he's only in one of the endless games. Ghosts come at him, and then you have to discern the audible commands to figure out if there are one or two and how fast you should slash them. Those are about all the notable games that I sort of really enjoy or found interesting enough to note because I didn't want to talk about all of them because that would take forever, though I'm considering doing a ranking of every minigame in the series. And next is Rhythm Heaven for the Nintendo DS, which was the first American entry in the series. So it uses the stylus entirely for movement except for Rockers 2, which uses the R button. Oh, I did forget to mention that lots of games... Lots of mini games get sequels later on after you've completed the quote unquote story mode, which is kind of the ending of the game. There are a lot more mini games you can complete before you get 100% that are sequels to the previous mini games. So, Rockers 2 is the sequel to the first Rockers and occurs closer to the end of the game. Um, the stylus movement comprises of taps, holds, and flicks. And this is the only Nintendo DS game besides Brain Age where you hold the DS on its side instead of right side up. This is probably because Sunku doesn't actually know how to hold a DS and Brain Age was the only game he actually had any experience with. And like I said um, earlier that I wanted to bring up now, there are also lots of bonus options besides the main games in the series. You can also talk to a bartender, um, earn rewards such as other games, play endless games and in the case of rhythm heaven ds also participate in a battle of the bands which um taking from the rockers mini game where you sort of play songs from other mini games as part of a battle of the bands and that's sort of the culmination of another rock training side mode and i didn't get all the way through that because you have to get a perfect in every game and a couple of them are very hard notable games in this one so there's built to scale which kind of has a similar artistic style to polyrhythm from tengoku you see these widgets with holes in the middle and so they're coming together and you have to flick a pin towards them so that the two widgets coming towards each other are overlapping so the pin goes through both of them and creates one unified widget that one's the first one. It's kind of simple, but it's an it's a nice enough introduction. Next is probably the most famous one from this game, Glee Club. This one's unique in that you, instead of pressing the DS on the screen to make an input, normally when you're 
acting as one of a chorus kid, you just sort of sing as a default and you have to hold the stylus down to be quiet. And the game gives a pretty funny command called tap to close your yap whenever you start that one. And when this came back for Rhythm Heaven Mega Mix, there was a slight change that they had done with it. And like it's just like with Tap Trio, it's sort of monkey see monkey do, except they're weird little alien creatures instead of monkeys. And so basically the first will hold a note, then the second one will hold a note, harmonizing on top, and you have to be the third one. And then all three of you tap shut at the same time. Although for Mega Mix, they make the game a little easier by giving you a cue right before you need to stop. And Mega Mix kind of does that with a lot of games make by making them easier for no apparent reason. Although they do make up for the easiness level of some of them, including a really hard um, challenge mode, if you really wanted to, later in the game. After Glee Club, there's one that I like to know called Moai Doo-Wop, where you play as Easter Island heads and one sings to you and you have to repeat the singing commands back. This is one of the weirder games in the series. Um, then there Karate Man Returns, except this time there's somebody singing a song with actual lyrics, which happens sometimes in some of the Rhythm Heaven games, though mostly it's just standard background game music without lyrics. And But ones with lyrics are definitely nicely appreciated. And it doesn't have the heart meter in this one. Like I said, they got rid of that after one minigame. Um, then there's Rhythm Rally, which is playing ping pong with what looks like the same creatures from Space Dance. And Rhythm Rally 2 is so stressful because not only is the ball swinging at you in at a really fast speed, but there's also the matter of the camera kind of swivels around. So it's very disorienting, especially if you want to get a perfect on it. Speaking of disorienting games that are hard to get a perfect on, there's Lockstep, which is stupid hard, even though I did manage to get a perfect in it on Mega Mix eventually. So basically, there's somebody sort of giving a command and you have to tap on beat the whole time like this. Don't know if you heard that or not, but I did. and then the commander gives a cue to switch beats that goes like this hype, 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 papa. And then you have to hit on the off beat and then switch back to the regular beat when he gives another cue for it. And that is kind of hard to follow, especially because of the really stupid, precise timing you need for it. But it's a fun one, especially when it zooms out of the lockstep creatures and you see that they're all forming a picture of Bach, except he has an afro and a mustache. So that's kind of funny. Um, next is Rockers, which, like I said, this is the guitar one. And this is another sort of follow my lead game where somebody gives a command and then you have to repeat said command. And you, you slide the, the stylus along the touchscreen side of the DS to sort of strum the guitar. Next is Frog Hop, which I think is my favorite mini game in Rhythm Heaven, just because I really like the song. It's based off of an, it's sort it's um it's not like a 1950s rock song kind of like with lost step you have to tap on the whole beat except they don't mind it as much because the song is so catchy there's a main frog singer a backup frog singer and then you're one of the four backup frog dancers and so the secondary frog singer gives you command cues ahead of time so you know what to do on the next one and you have to do it alongside your frog dancer comrades 
as with all of these, I highly recommend looking up playthroughs of these games just to get a better picture of what we mean. Because um, I think these are all genuinely really interesting. Um, then there's another weirder one called Love Lizards. So they're apparently in the universe, there's a species of lizard where the male is a smaller um, gender of the species with a maraca tail and in order to attract a mate you as the female lizard have to drum your tail along your back to create a singing sound to sort of match with the male lizard's maraca beat this is again one of the weirder ones but it's a surprisingly fun it it looks really weird <laughs> lastly the last one i wanted to mention was munchy monk where this one's a fast-paced one but it's also really fun especially the second one because it goes a little longer than the Munchy Monk one, which lasts for like under a minute. So there's there's like the one one where you have to basically somebody sets a piece of food on your hand, then you have to slap that hand with your other hand to sort of bring the food up into your mouth. And then what's weird is like you grow a mustache and in some and also your eyes get bushier as you eat. So like I said, I think it's a little weird, but that one is especially fun like the second one because there's also like a big band orchestra in the background comprised of elephants and mice but yeah that is it for rhythm heaven yes now for the third entry rhythm heaven fever so rhythm heaven's fever is thus far the only rhythm heaven home console game so it uses the wii remote no nunchuck and only uses the a and b buttons for input and the plus and minus buttons for menu navigation the final remix is Probably the toughest minigame in the whole series because it brings literally everyone in this game together. And then there's a fake out ending where you think it's over, but then like the music starts back up again and you have to do one last series of inputs and then you're done. Notable games in this one is again Karate Man, which I think is the best one in the best iteration of Karate Man in the series. I think that this is probably my favorite minigame entirely. And it's more like an angsty rock song and you have to hit the inputs really fast and it's just uh, it's so fast paced and energetic i love it um and then the first game you're introduced to in hole in one which i think has amazing music where this monkey throws golf balls at you and you have to hit it on beat and then there will be this mandrill who throws gol larger golf ball golf balls faster and you have to keep up with him um then there's double date which you're sitting on a your boy sitting on a bench with this girl but the there are these sports playing hoodlums nearby and balls fly near you. And so you have to kick them, but each one has its own unique beat. A soccer ball has a regular beat. A basketball bounces on the off beat and then the football bounces on three beats before it bounces toward you and you have to kick it. And the reason you're kicking the balls at all is because right next to you, there are a couple of weasels who have sort of hired you to protect them from these balls that are coming your way. Monkey watch. And this one's unique, and it's a little hard to get down, but once you do, it works. You're this monkey on, like, the hand of a watch, and you have to clap hands with these monkeys that are also on the... that are sort of on the minute points. As the second hand moves by, you have to hit it, even though it doesn't work in increments of seconds, and then you have to hit these series of two monkeys on two subsequent beats, but on the off beats instead. So it's kind of the best way I can think to explain it. Um, and then there's Air Rally, which is kind of a variation on Rhythm Rally, except it's badminton in the sky instead of ping pong. And it's really fast paced. And it's a dog named Baxter playing with a cat named Forthington. And then 
he'll give a command and the best part is like when there's sort of a longer break between him hitting the badman to you he'll say ba bomb 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 and but when he's really far away he's like screaming it at the top of his lungs so it's hilarious and then Forthington will be obscured by clouds so you can't see him so relying too heavily on visual input for these games can result in you getting punished pretty heavily so like they say in game it's best to sink into the rhythm and enjoy it next is figure fighter so basically there's this little fight this little boxer toy that'll punch a punching bag and you have to hit the a button on time with his punches to blow him up and make his punches powerful since he's sort of a air dummy and so by hitting the pump he'll pump full of air and become much stronger um next is working dough which is another game where you sort of repeat commands so you sort of work as sentient balls of dough and these little balls that i think work with the manufacturing of a rocket ship or something you'll have to propel them into the air because you're underneath spaces in a conveyor belt so you sort of have to make sure they get toward their destination and that the rocket gets built this is another one that you have to see to figure out how it works and then lastly is cheer readers and so the reason this is called the way it is is you're part of a group of school cheerleaders except you're doing your cheerleading in a library to um, cheer these students in the library study. I don't know who thought of that, but it's a really fun concept. Well, so the other thing is in Japanese, the L sound and R sound are kind of interchangeable. Yeah, that's not what they were going for. It was a pun because cheer readers instead no, of cheer no, leaders. It's just another funny little. Yeah, I had thought that too when I saw it, but I don't think that's what they were going for. Um, I also think this is the first the first mini game in the series with unlockable mini games. So it's basically some older games from Tengoku, and there's also a two player mode. And alongside playing regular games in two player, you can also play some games in endless mode as two player and then there are one player endless modes and then there are some little rhythm widgets that you unlock from either getting perfects or just getting superb rankings and last game we have in the series is rhythm heaven megamix for the 3ds so while it only saw physical release in japan europe and i think korea um, the U.S. only got a digital version on the 3DS eShop. So the story features Tibby, this kid who has fallen from the rhythm heaven, needs your help to complete mini games to get him back up. I, this one is unique because I think the localization team actually worked really hard at translating the story because the dialogue is genuinely funny. It's not like Nintendo cringe humor that you'd expect from them, judging by what the announcers say at the directs. They actually tried really hard with this one. Um you venture up and um, through through playing the mini games and spoiler warning, sip a few seconds ahead if you don't want to be spoiled for the game. But basically, as you climb the tree world to Rhythm Heaven, you fall back down and learn that you need to get these towers, clear the rest of the towers to go back up. And then you do that. And then you finally beat the final boss, which is actually Tibby's mom, who's turned into a giant fortress. And then that's the end of the game. So Mega Mix doesn't have too many original games and instead focuses on the series past since the American release was close to Rhythm 10 Goku's 10th anniversary. So notable original games, there aren't too many. Um, so there's Catchy Tune. You play as these two 
um, people in costumes who are catching fruit that's being hurled at you. The oranges work on regular beats, but the pineapples move longer. So you have to, the one, the person on the left, you catch with the D-pad, the one on the right, you catch with the A button. It's hard when the oranges and pineapples both go once because you have to keep track of both. But that one's a fun one. Um, Fruit Basket is the next one. And you play as this sentient piece of sidewalk who bounces fruit that comes your way into baskets, like basketball baskets. And yeah, that one's fun. There's Tongue Lashing, which I think has some really fun music. You play as this chameleon who has to catch yellow and red bugs on beat the red ones take a little bit slower than the yellow ones so you have to keep track of them individually to make sure you catch them on correct time then there's lumbear jack you play as this um giant white bear it's called lumbear jack but he frankly looks more like a wolf and you have to um chop wood to the beat and this is another one of my favorites just because i really love the music for this one it sounds it's um the main instrument is a fiddle and or violin and, you know i've had arguments with a lot of people before over whether or not fiddle or violin is right correct my in my opinion it's whatever type of music you play on it for instance in oh brother where art thou that any instruments using a violin in that movie would be considered a fiddle but in a symphony it would be considered a violin Speaking of which, thank you to everybody who did listen to that episode. I thought it would be more of a niche movie that not as many people would listen to, but I was surprised by the turnout for that one. It's um, quite a following, actually. So, yeah, it's a good movie. Um, next mini game is Sumo Brothers. And basically, you play as sumo wrestlers and you have to clap each other's hands to the beat. And then you do sumo stomping when the announcer gives you correct input and then you have to pose using the b button on another input and then lastly this one isn't really a regular game but it's a turnip mini game um so you have to feed this goat turnips except it's a pachinko machine and then you have to pay coins that you've earned throughout playing the game to launch turnips through it and feed the goat and yep that is the end of the regular rhythm heaven series so I'm going to rank these on an out of 30 scale and that these takes into account the gameplay and controls, the art style or graphics, the story, if any, and the music. So I've altered the some of the rankings, swing them one way, because a game can be great without having a story. So sometimes it's just an added bonus. Same in terms of music, like the music can really add to it, but it doesn't necessarily need to have good music to be a great game. Because yeah, the Mario games are just the same story over and over, right? And yet people still keep coming back to them. So I'm giving Rhythm 10 Goku a 21 out of 30. So just a regular 21, just because I kind of enjoyed it, but it's frankly a little primitive and my experience with it wasn't that great. Um, Rhythm Heaven DS gets a 24, um, 7 out of 10 with the controls, 8 out of 10 with the art style and graphics, and 9 out of 10 with music. I feel like it would be a little better if it wasn't restricted to the DS since the style there is a little pixely. Rhythm Heaven Fever gets a 27 out of 30 with 8 out of 10 gameplay and controls, 10 out of 10 art style and graphics, and 9 out of 10 music. One thing I'd forgotten to mention is most, most of these games function in 2D, except for a couple games in the original Rhythm Heaven, which... Um, feature more 3D models instead of 2D sprites. 
And yeah, Fever is the best in the series. Um, Mega Mix also gets a 27 with a bonus point for story. So it gets an eight out of 10 gameplay and controls, eight out of 10 for art style and graphics, and 10 out of 10 for music, just because of how many games they bring back. I know that's a little higher than Fever, but I also did want to kind of make sure they were equal. But yeah. Yoshimitsu, what are your scores for this game, if any? I know you didn't really have time to actually play these. Uh, yeah, I don't really have any stories of it. Um, I watched some of the playthrough, and the style looks pretty nice. I like the artistic style. I'd give it a solid 7 or 8 out of 10. Uh, story, again, I didn't watch enough of the playthrough to really understand what the heck was going on. I saw the Lizards game. I saw the one where you're stomping on turnips and eating them into a bag, and then where you're stomping on moles and chucking them away. That one was fun to watch. Uh so I can't really rate the story because I haven't seen the story. It would be fair. Um, music... I mean, the, to be fair, any of the games besides Mega Mix don't have a story. Okay. Yeah. Music, I'd give it a 9 out of 10. So it, the music's pretty good. Overall, I'll give it an 8 out of 10 just based on what I've seen and heard. Nice. Because I have not been able to play it, which is unfortunate. Because it looks interesting. I do want to give it a try at some point. All right. That is it for the Rhythm Heaven series. So what we're going to do with our game rankings from now on is sort of keep them on a spreadsheet and then kind of keep them ranked by score to figure out how they fare in a similar vein to the Hardcore Gaming 101 podcast, except it's not deliberately as a ranking. It's just kind of a way to keep track where the main portion of it is just the reviews. And we've each picked a game to cover. So, Yoshimitsu, what is yours? Uh, so, the game I'm going to choose to cover is... I nearly said Streets Rage 4. No, not yet. Um, I'm covering Minecraft Dungeons Stats. Uh, it was released May 26, 2020. It was developed by Mojang Studios and Double Eleven and published by Xbox Game Studios. Uh it was released for Windows, PS4, Switch, Xbox One, and it came to the Xbox Series S or X and Series S, February twenty fourth, twenty twenty one. There was also an arcade version that released May twenty twenty one. It is a uh, to sum it up, it's a dungeon crawler that takes place within the Minecraft universe, and uh, it, it's a um, it's one of the Minecraft spinoffs. It's the third one after Story Mode and Minecraft Earth. Uh, the main storyline is that you have to defeat the main villain, the Arch Illager, uh, also known as Archie, and destroy the Ob of Darmanence that's kind of causing him to act evil and also corrupt other people. Did you call it the Ob uh, of Dominance? Because I believe it's did called I, the Orb, uh, Orb of, of Dominance. That, that, I might have called it the Ob of Dominance. That would be my fault entirely. Um, it's got a leveling and equipment system, uh, and you navigate through isometric levels, uh, exploring to find cool items, uh, upgrades for your armor and gear, and also defeating various mobs, uh, most of which are from the base Minecraft universe, but many of them are variants. Uh, you also, yeah, you try to find various upgrades. You also get emeralds and on some occasions gold. Uh, you also occasionally pick up potions that will help you along the journey. Um, so, uh 
there's in addition to the main game, I think five or six DLC. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how many there are. There's an ocean adventure DLC, uh, dingy jungle DLC, um, creeping winter DLC, howling peaks DLC, uh, flaming nether DLC, and echoing void DLC. So the ocean adventure is you're going through the ocean. Uh, these all take place after you have defeated the Arch Illager and shattered the Orb of Dominance. Various shards of the orb end up in various locations, corrupting wildlife. So the Ocean Adventure, I, Hidden Depths is what that one is called. Uh, you go through various ocean-themed stages and defeat various mobs and recollect the shard of the Orb of Dominance. And that one's fun. It introduces a few cool items. Uh, and then the other thing about that one is you have to make sure your breath stays up in addition to your health. So it kind of adds that extra little element of um, chaos because if you uh, run out of air, you will start to drown. Um, the dingy jungle, you're going through the jungle, finding the shard of the Orb of Dominance to um, release wildlife th uh, from corruption and captivity. There's a final boss. It's like a giant ant kind of but evil. Uh, Frosted Frosted Fjord or the, not Frosted Fjord, the Creeping Winter DLC is a short, a shard has fallen into like a frozen area and corrupted whatever's there as well. And you're trying to find that and reclaim it as well. Uh, the um, Howling Peaks, it's kind of like on top of a mountain and something that's got some cool, like, I guess, kind of Buddhist monastery, steampunk sort of things. It, it looks really cool. Um, then the uh, Flaming Nether, I think it's called, I can't remember. Uh, of course, one ends up in the Nether somehow, and you, or it might, um, but the thing is you go through various ne uh, Nether stages, much the same as before, and um, feed various things. And that introduced something called the Ancient Hunts, um, which uh, you sacrifice gear and items to run through a... Uh, randomly generated mission uh, with three stages to it. And um, each one, there's a chance for you to find something called an ancient mob, which will drop a specialized piece of gear that is gilded, which means it comes with an extra enchantment. And then you can get gold. And it also introduced another merchant who you can uh, buy gilded items from. And then finally, there's the end DLC, the Echoing Void, which kind of continues the storyline in a different way than the rest, where uh, when uh, in the actual storyline and spoilers, uh, but you defeat the Arch Illager and immediately after he transforms into what is known as the Heart of Ender. That is the real final boss of the main storyline. Um, so you defeat that and it ends up, of course, going back to its home, the end. Uh, and you have freed Archie and whatever, but then you go to the end and you find out that it's awakened again and so you have to go through the stages and fight it again and defeat evil for the final last time supposedly it's a game that's updated regularly so there's an intermission thing that you can go through called the tower you basically have this uh, avatar profile that you play through it's completely blank unfortunately that version of the game is not multiplayer but the rest is so uh, it's a lot of fun to play um, especially with friends uh, the only issue comes when you start to play 
uh, on your own and then you get leveled up too far ahead of other people and then it's not fun to play with people below you. There is something that I would like to bring up and that is that there are two editions of Minecraft Dungeons beyond the base game that I've noticed. Um, So the two that have seen a physical release for Nintendo Switch and other consoles, there's the Hero Edition, which contains the Hero Pass, and the Hero Pass comes with the Jungle Awakens and Creeping Winter DLC, as well as a Hero Cape, two player skins, and a chicken pet. And then there's the Ultimate Edition, which contains all six DLCs. I've played the Hero Edition, but not terribly often. The Ultimate Edition is definitely worth getting. It's a much better deal than buying the game and then all the DLCs as well. Uh, You also get a few extra things free with it. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of stuff that gets unlocked throughout various DLC uh, editions that I would highly recommend getting. So then for the arcade version, the arcade is interesting because obviously you're going to build a character on these machines and you want to be able to do stuff with that. So what they developed is a card system where you have a card that stores your character on it. And so you can actually play the same character throughout various machines at different arcades. I actually, um, Nintendo did a similar thing for Mario Kart in the arcade because they had made three of those. So you can get this thing called a Mario Kart. Ha ha funny. And, you know, store your game data on it because of how many different tracks there are for it. I think I've mentioned that series in a, th- those arcade games in a previous episode. Yeah, so as you play through dungeons, you, of course, level up, and leveling up increases your health and also the quality of gear you get as you play and also gives you the ability to uh, enchant it with different enchantments. Uh, so that's a lot of fun to do, again, with people. Uh, Tiger and I actually played together a while, uh, not too not too long ago, about a week, um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, at least for me, I don't know. What did you think? Um, let's see. So I don't know if you want me to save my general thoughts on the game till later, but I think multiplayer worked rather well. The only problem was the camera zooming out. I much would have. Um, I'm used. To split screen multiplayer in games where you're playing in non online co op. So that was a little tricky to get used to, but you know, yeah. other than that, I think the game functions fine. There's a system with the items where you can, if you have um, a piece, an armor equipped, for example, and then you get the same one, but it's better, you can salvage your old one and get emeralds for it, and then emeralds you can use in turn with the shops to get, you know, better items and stuff. Yeah. And then we didn't get this far when we played, but there's also a merchant you lock in one of the levels who will allow you to uh, give an item to another player, and then also one that you can give items and he will upgrade them while you do missions. So if, like, you have a gear like a setup that's really like it's absolutely perfect you can give those items to the blacksmith and he'll upgrade them while you run other levels with a different setup and then you can get your items back and go back to using your old setup uh like for me i have a very specific um setup that's actually super good for clearing just hordes of mobs because um i have an enchantment on my bow that means when i roll uh firstly it shoots uh three arrows at um uh, targets 
uh, within a certain range and um, deals 40% of the normal damage with that, but then also charges all of my shots for the next good while. So I basically can roll and then spam arrows. Uh, and I really like that combination. So um, having a blacksmith there is really nice. So if you have something that you find works really well, you can give that item to him and he will make it better while you do missions. Again, like the main focus of this game is more on running missions and the dungeon crawler experience rather than an actual story. So story-wise, like honestly, I skip the cutscenes most of the time when I play. I would give this story maybe six out of ten. It's pretty good. I like I mean, that it I... takes place in the Minecraft universe and incorporates most of the aspects of that in terms of mobs and a lot of other things. To be honest, I'm not even classifying story at all in my ranking because, yeah, you know, like I said, sometimes a story is just like an added bonus that'll tack a couple of extra points onto, and the music can also be an extra thing, but I'm not including the music in my ranking either because I did not pay attention. I guess Yeah, you kind of have to go back and listen to the music itself because the soundtrack is pretty good. I would give it a solid 8 out of 10. Uh, in terms of gameplay, uh, like you mentioned, the co-op camera thing is a bit annoying, but I think that's to try to make sure people don't end up just wandering off into different parts of the mission, because if you're playing multiplayer, the goal is to complete missions together, not have one person flying off to one end of the world and fighting a boss while the other person's stuck on a complete uh, tangent doing something completely different. So I, I get why the camera's like that. It is annoying, but I think it's good that it is that way gameplay i would give it a nine out of ten it is a lot of fun to just sit around and grind for hours honestly i mean i'm also one to enjoy grindy games not everyone's like that essentially i think it's good at being set in the world of minecraft but functioning differently enough to not feel like the exact same game repackaged um the isometric bit is definitely what makes it different but it's weird like being next to a tree but you can't mine the tree and stuff it's um it's definitely a little jarring especially if you're like really used to the base game but you kind of adjust over time whereas with minecraft story mode i didn't really have that problem because it was mostly just watching cutscenes and picking things that's why it's on netflix of all places yeah because it's choose been, your own adventure they've been really going hard with the netflix interactive films because Aside from that one, there's a Bear Grylls one my sister likes. There was a one based off of the Captain Underpants animated series. And I tried the Bear Grylls one. I couldn't get past the first question for some reason. It wouldn't let me either option I chose. I died. So Netflix is a really weird way to play Minecraft story mode. I think there's a bit more yeah. stuff you can do in the ones for actual game systems. But I think it functioned well enough. I they have the first five episodes. If you want to play that one, that's fine. But yeah, Minecraft Dungeons. Um, let's see. In terms of gameplay and controls, I'll probably give it a 12 out of 15. I really like the auto-aiming mechanic the bow and arrow has. You're oh, yeah. It would be a pain in the butt to aim yourself. It's feel nice when you're um, uh, hitting, I guess. Uh, leveling up mechanic's nice. Um, I would like to mention I did take a game design class last year, so I've learned a lot of elements that I can kind of see in these other games now. So two separated factions that I think are included in terms of the base game creation. Number one is asset management, and this includes the audio-visual components like art assets, um, music tracks, sound effects, anything like that. 
And then the other side of the gameplay itself, you know, all the coding, the nitty-gritty, bug testing. I'm pretty sure there are more things than that from what I remember. But yeah, that's kind of how I'll probably be ranking it in terms of, like, game. Like I said, gameplay controls, 12 out of 15, since I want the total to be out of 30, so I don't have 3 out of 10. Instead, I have 2 out of 15. So, and art style and graphics... I'll give it a 9 out of 15. The reason I'm not giving it really any higher is just because it's kind of... Just in comparison to the regular Minecraft world, because it's kind of derivative of it. And in that case, it lacks originality, but it still works as a spinoff. And it's that confusion aspect of being in the same world, but with a completely different uh, gameplay style. Plus... If you look closely at the Illager carts, the wheels are square. How do they move? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, you brought that up. Um, but yeah, total score is 21 out of 30, which is, to be frank, not that great, but I guess still good. So congratulations, Minecraft Dungeons. You did good. Yoshimitsu, care to further elaborate on anything? Or get uh, your score? Final score, because I, I'm just doing things on it. Give it a solid eight and a half out of ten because it's a lot of fun to post in the game if you're just starting out it is kind of annoying because you don't have very much health if someone gets too far away they'll be teleported to you at loss of health and in other words if you go too far someone will get teleported and be stuck at half health um, but it, it's a lot of fun to play later in the game when you have stuff that can actually do things to mobs you can find satisfying combos i think that like ability to make your own builds is quite a lot of fun although i don't know i haven't played too many dungeon crawler games so i don't know how unique that is yeah solid score of eight and a half out of ten it's a lot of fun um so let's see out of 30 which is um what we'll be doing with rankings that would be a 25.5 which is definitely higher than i gave it but on the other yeah. hand i haven't played this much had enough experience with it to sort of give it a good enough test run you now, also only have two of the DLCs, so you can't do stuff like Ancient Hunts and mm -hmm. whatever. Oh, one thing I would like to mention is Minecraft Dungeons did get a few Lego sets. It's something I like ah, to do with yes. movies and now with games. So let me see. I forgot about that. There is one called the Redstone Battle, which is set 21163, and it's a bunch of um minecraft crew members with the pig and then there are these two redstone golems one's kind of small and one's larger and then i think there's only one other one which is called the jungle abomination set 21176 and it's yeah, that's the one you fight in the jungle uh dlc yeah there's a tree golem and then there's a regular iron golem a skeleton couple crew members a purple creeper and this giant venus flytrap looking thing the purple creeper would be enchanted mm -hmm. presumably so yeah those are a couple of lego sets i think lego's still selling them they came out a couple of years ago so yeah i knew those existed uh solely because i've seen the weapons pack on um bricklink a few times and i do want to get one because the weapons look pretty cool so. mm -hmm. but yeah so, um, even though we are done with years in gaming and can't really do years to coincide with consoles, there are a couple of consoles we've missed over our, over the episodes, and 
the first one um, I wanted to get into was the Atari 2600 because we had tried to talk about that with our very second episode. But like I said, um, that part of the episode went missing and very, very briefly touched on it in that episode. But I want to give it an actual chance, a redo with like substantial information on it. But before we do that, there was a feature that I incorporated later into the podcast, which included the total amount of games, roughly, released for a system. So I'm going to play catch up with the systems that we've had covered before that we didn't list the games released for it. So um, Famicom, Japanese version of the NES, 1,056 games. The NES, 716 licensed games with 176 additional unlicensed games since those ran rampant. Sega Mega Drive and Genesis, 878 games. Game Boy, 1,046. Sega Game Gear, 364. Super Famicom and Super NES together, roughly 1,513. Sega CD, 205. Sega 32X, 40. Didn't have many at all. Sega Saturn, 1,048. PlayStation, 4,105. Nintendo 64, 393. It's a really easy system for collectors to get a complete set of, aside from a couple of really expensive games. Game Boy Color, 915. PlayStation 2, 4,379, which is the most of any system we've covered. Game Boy Advance, 1,534. Nintendo GameCube, 653. X, the original Xbox, 997. Nintendo DS, 2,955. PlayStation Portable, 1,913. Xbox 360, 2,154. And lastly, the PlayStation 3 had 2,558 games released for it. Oh, no, wait, there's a few more, never mind. The Nintendo Wii had 1,638 games released for it. The 3DS, 1,738. Although I think a couple more are still releasing because it's still kind of there. And the PlayStation Vita was the last one we have with 1,308. So the console we are covering today is the Atari 2600. Going to go over some release notes, games released for it, um, variations of the console itself, some accessories, things like that. So... The Atari 2600, also known as the Atari Video Computer System, upon initial launch, the 2600 moniker came later. It released September 11th, 1977 in North America. It came to Europe in 1978. In Japan, in October of 1983, it sold 30 million units over the course of its lifespan. Uh, Its launch price was $169.99. Its best-selling game was Pac-Man, which is frankly a very bad version of Pac-Man, and yet it sold 8 million units. It's What's regarded as its best game is Pitfall. I couldn't find a Metacritic score, so I based this kind of solely off of browsing various top 10 lists to see what the most common out winners were. The worst, what's regarded as the worst game for it is E.T., um, there's a pretty famous story behind that one, but I'll get into it later. And what's regarded as its rarest game is Red Sea Crossing. I think maybe a hundred of the game were developed, but only two copies of it have ever been found, and it's an unofficial biblically licensed game. There are a couple of other Atari 2600 games that are deemed as rare, like there's Pepsi Challenge, where you um, it's a Space Invaders clone that was licensed by Coke, where you shoot letters of the word Pepsi, because that's um competition, I guess. Shoot, shoot your competitors 
And the very last game released for it officially was Acid Drop, which was only released in Europe, and it released 1992. So, first off, some Atari history. Um, depending on when you're listening to this, Atari will soon, or recently did, celebrate their 50th anniversary. They were founded June 27th of 1972. Um, so it was founded by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, who had gotten their start in the computer and video game world by founding a company called Syzygy that eventually morphed into Atari. So they created the very first arcade game ever called Computer Space, which was based of an, off of an earlier game called Space War. And they, after getting another employer, uh, I think his name was Al Alcorn, who developed the game Pong, that game became the very first video game smash hit. It was hugely popular, and this le- Pong ended up getting a lot of its own just sort of dedicated plug-and-play consoles as controllers you plug into your TV. This led to the first video game crash, not the big one, but the first one, because of the simplicity of Pong on a chip that the Atari 2600 single-handedly resolved with the use of interchangeable cartridges inspired by the Fairchild Channel F. Although the Magnavox Odyssey did technically use interchangeable cartridges. I actually probably should have covered that one first, but oh well, um, that'll be in a couple episodes. So Bushnell had sold Atari to Warner Communications in 1976 to gather funding for the project, and the original prototype was based off of the then-recently-released MOS 6502 processor, which was made by Motorola. And the first console prototype was dubbed the Stella, Various refinements and a very 1970s wood grain finish later, the Atari 2600, then known as the video computer system, was born. So it's black with like this grill thing. There's like this weird part of it that juts out where you're with the switchboard that you're also supposed to put the cartridge in. And yeah, along the front is a faux wood panel. So the original model came with a joystick controller known as the CX-10. It was a joystick controller with one red button. Um, A later version known as the CX-40 had black around the base of the joystick instead of an orange directional guide. The controller can, oddly enough, be used with a Sega Genesis or Master System if you really want it to. The console itself has six metal switches surrounding the cartridge port, so there's on-off. You can switch between your TV type, either color or black and white. You can tell this is an old system because it had this option at all. Um, Left difficulty, right difficulty, which is um, set difficulty for your players, game select, and a reset switch. So first off, talking about the game select one. So Atari did this really interesting thing with their games where they had taken a... On one game cartridge, there were a lot of different game modes, and in some cases, completely different games on one cartridge, and then you keep flipping the game select switch to cycle through them. It's a really interesting feature that I'm surprised wasn't used too much more on any other system. So most games that we are going to list will be developed by Atari, so we'll only note if they're developed by someone else. So we won't say developed and published by Atari Incorporated for every single game. Yoshimitsu, please start us off. We'll be doing these games in alphabetical order. Okay. Uh, Adventure. It was an adventure game, but it plays kind of like a dungeon crawler. It was released in 1980. That one's interesting because it was... I'd first heard about it because it was prominently featured in the novel, Ready Player One, and the movie to a regard. But yeah, there's an interesting Easter egg that I probably talked about the show a million times where the developer hit his name in a room, but you have to collect specific objects to then go to the said room. 
but I think the game in general is kind of boring, but I think it was good for its time. Next is Air Sea Battle, which released in 1977. It features different types of shooting games, uh, 27 and all. Yeah, it's fine. Basic math. It was an educational game, and it was released in 1977. Yeah, I don't... That game is frankly bad because all it is 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 really a calculator feature to quote-unquote teach you math with some math lessons. It reminds me of when Nintendo... um, Somebody made Calculator for Nintendo Switch, and it's a feature that costs $10, even though it comes free with, like, every smartphone. Oh, sorry. Nintendo had even made some more calculators with personality featuring Mario characters for the DS. Granted, those were also overpriced, but at least they had a little something to them. Um, Next is Blackjack, which was a gambling game released in 1977. It would probably be rated M for simulated gambling. Um, Oh, no, wait. I think gambling games are only rated M if they involve, like, betting real money and using real slots. So in that case, it probably would only be rated T, I think. Combat was released in 1977. It was a multi-directional shooter with 27 different game options. Yeah, that one's kind of fun. It reminds me of the um, tank mini game from We Play because of the way everything moves and sort of the camera angle and everything. Mm-hmm. Next is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which released in 1982. It was an action-adventure game. The reason I'm covering this here is because it was regarded as being good in its day, even though the developer Howard Scott Warshaw ended up working on a game with a not as good reputation for the same system. Next up was Indy 500. It was a racing game released in 1977, and it actually featured 14 games. I mean, a lot of these games that we're not saying too much that did release in 1977 were only including just because they were launch games for the system. But next, yep, is E.T. for the Atari 2600. I can't remember if it released in 1982 or 83, but it was one of those years. And yep, Howard Scott Warshaw worked on that. It's technically a puzzle game. So you play as E.T. based off the movie, right? And um, you collect pieces of Reese's Puffs to gain health, and every time you walk, your power is depleted, and you have to avoid the character of Keys, who is hunting you down. But the thing is, pits are everywhere, and getting out of a pit also drains your energy, so it makes the game very annoying and frustrating, and it led to Atari abandoning lots of stock of that game, along with many of their other games, in a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico, that a documentary crew eventually unearthed in 2014. Haunted House was released in 1982, and it is a survival horror game. To be honest, though, it's really not a horror game because it's, like, just squares. So there's really nothing horror-related. Like, what's weird, though, is your player character is just a pair of eyes that moves around. It's a little weird, but it's... Yeah, I guess it kind of works. It's also kind of a puzzle game, yeah. Next is Pitfall, which, like I said, is developed as this... um seen as one of the best games for it it was a platformer developed and published by activision that released in 1982 so activision sort of function as like the very first third-party game manufacturers for primary console gaming companies and yeah this game looks pretty fun you have to you play as this guy named pitfall harry who has to swing over pits and stuff um various sequels and Various sequels have released for, like, the NES, the Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo. 
I think there's this one called Pitfall the Lost Adventure for the Wii, which actually contains the old Atari version on it. But I think it's also in um, Activision Classics for the PlayStation 2 if you want to play it that way as well. Pitfall 2 Lost Caverns was released. It's in, uh, for Activision. It was a platformer and released in 1984. And this next series of games is just a whole series that I wanted to meld into one because I don't care about talking about any of them individually and that is the real sports series which also ended up carrying over to the Atari 5200 so all the games in this real sports series are baseball basketball boxing football soccer tennis and volleyball okay Starship Space Combat Simulator released in 1977 next is Street Racer which was a racing game that I think was yeah that was also released in 1977 as a launch game Next is Surround. It was also released in 1977. It was an action game, and it was a precursor to Snake. Yeah, I, I mean, I assume most of you have played Snake. It's just like a game where you play as a snake on a board. You have to eat apples, and then you grow, and it becomes a challenge to avoid yourself as you try to get apples. And this was kind of the first game that ended up inspiring the popular Snake game, which got most famous for being included on Nokia phones, and now you can play it on Google. Just type in Google Snake, and you can play it. So this is another one that I had first heard about through Ready Player One, and that is the Sword Quest series. So there's Earthworld, an adventure game, which which is considered as a semi-sequel to Adventure. It released in 1982, Sword Quest Fireworld, which released in 1983, and Waterworld, which released in 1984. So basically, Atari had this plan where every time one of the games released, you could participate in a local contest. And if you would end up winning a really fantastical prize that was valued at like a ridiculous amount of money. So the winner of the Sword Quest Earthworld competition won a prize that I believe he melted it down to pay for college. And the Sword Quest... So while they had planned to do this for um, four games in the series, they only released three and held competitions for the first two. So I can't remember anything about the competition for Sword Quest Fireworld. But yeah, they didn't hold the competition for Sword Quest Waterworld. And because Atari had fallen on hard times after the video game crash of 1983, which was the big one that I had alluded to earlier, um, they never released Sword Quest Earthworld with no Airworld. Aired World, that was it, which was intended to be the last game in the series. To be frank, the games really aren't that good just because of how primitive they are, but whatever. Okay, so the Video Olympics were 50 games, mainly different versions of Pong, hockey, basketball, volleyball, and others. I think, yeah, that one was released in 1977, was also a launch game. Okay. And lastly, we have Yara's Revenge, which was a third-person shooter that released in 1982. I honestly think it's my favorite out of the Atari 2600 library since I feel like it's the one that works the best. But, you know, original games weren't all Atari really did for the system. They had also released a lot of home console versions of arcade games, which is where it's, a lot of its appeal came from. So notable arcade ports for it include Asteroids, Breakout, Centipede, Crystal Castles, Defender, Donkey Kong... Donkey Kong hmm. Jr., Gravatar, Joust, Mario Bros., not Super Mario Bros. for the NES, but the original Mario Brothers for the arcade where you um, fight turtles and crabs. Um, Missile How's Command. That different? No, it's like, it's just a two-player game where you're all in one thing. Super Mario Bros. is a single-player platformer and stuff. Um, Missile Command, Skydiver, Space Invaders, and Warlords. Lord is actually kind of fun from what I remember. 
um, some notable controllers for it. So first off, aside from the joystick, there was also the paddle controller, two of which were bundled with the Atari VCS at launch. Some other console, um, some other controllers include a keyboard controller known as the CX-50. So each sort of controller for the Atari um, 2600 has a CX and then a two-digit number code for it. Um, I'm not quite sure why this is the case, but it kind of works for them to have a sense of unity, I guess. Um, wireless controllers with receivers known as the CX-42. The Atari Kids controller, which was a simple nine-digit keypad known as the CX-23. I think it was bundled with a Sesame Street game and had Big Bird on it. There's also a trackball or trackball controller called the CX-22, which worked with Atari's 8-bit computers. Now it's time to talk about console variations. So first off, the 1980 version of the 2600, which released three years after the original, um, had a capital video computer system logo instead of an all lowercase one and had no difficulty switches, though it retained the other four. The first version dubbed the Atari 2600 released in 1982 and it was all black, you know, it, instead of the wood grain thing, it just had, it was all black. And that one also had no difficulty switches. Um, there was another different version of the Atari 2600. So essentially they had sort of made a manufacturing deal with Sears for them to release their own version of the Atari, Atari 2600 called the um, Sears Telegames Video Arcade. It was the same as the 20, original 2600 with a silver finish on the switchboard cartridge board. There was a second Sears Telegames Video Arcade, which looked completely different, more like a cheese slope. There are eight buttons, two difficulty settings for each player, a button to mark the controller input as joystick or paddle, a select and a reset button. This one was all black too with dark red detailing. The last 2600 model released in 1986 was called the 2600 Junior. It's really small, also with a cheese slope design and has a rainbow stripe below the switchboard. I think when it released it sold in clearance for as little as like $50 in some cases. Japan saw a version known as the Atari 2800 that released in 1983 that didn't do well. And there was also a planned 2600 version with RF output and wireless controllers called the Atari 2700 that never went beyond a prototype. And there was another canceled one that I would like to note. So Atari had invented this distributor called Key Games, which the tricky Atari offices had made just to get around arcade um, distribution and exclusivity contracts just so they could release their games in more places, which I think was really sneaky. And I don't know if that would be considered illegal now, but I guess it was fine. It didn't last very long. So there was planned to be a key games Atari 2600, which is notable because it the prototype of it is bright orange. But other than that, it just looks like a regular 2600. Um, so there have also been many different, um, 10 to be specific, Atari flashback plug-and-play consoles released in 2004 with many different games built in. Some have had all new sequels created for them for these systems, such as Adventure 2 and Yars Revenge 2 called Yars Return. Um, and there was also a series of three Atari flashback games released for the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, which each had 50 games. And the version released for Switch had all 150 games, which contains 2,600, 5,200, and arcade games. And that was how I had played a lot of these. To be frank, it's a little clunky, but it is a really nice piece of history, even though it is definitely quantity over quality. I don't know why they included 5,200, but also didn't spring to include some 7,800 
Atari Lynx, Atari Jaguar, some of those games, but yeah. But anyway, that is it for the Atari 2600, and that also wraps up this episode of Geeks and Games. Um, Yoshimitsu, where can the fine folks at home find you? Uh, you can find me uh, on Lego Ideas, uh, Discord, and uh, Mechabricks as Spectre Vamp. Um, and other than that, I can also be found now on Flickr as... Um, Class E Fied. Uh, also, Spectre Ramp. The Flickr naming system is weird. Um, but that just about sums it up for me. I'm... You forgot your Eurobricks. Oh, yes, I'm also on Eurobricks. I haven't checked that in a bit. I should probably do that. Uh, also, at Spectre Ramp. Uh, where can people find you, Tiger? All right, you can you can find me on Scratch's Woodstock 05 and also Lego Ideas is Woodstock 05. Um, you know, I haven't made anything new on Scratch in a long time. Check out my older projects if you want. Some of my sentence mixing songs I've enjoyed, even though they didn't get that much attention. I hate to, like, beg for views, but I would appreciate it if you all checked it out. Um, uh, let's see. Like I said, um, I am not on... Wait a minute. Let me double check my... I am also on Mechabricks as GNG Tiger. You can check out some of my projects. Some of them are in progress right now as we speak. Um, as always, please check out our Geeks and Games Discord. This is how you can participate in polls, ask us questions, just chat with us, send us anything, do whatever. We just love to have more of you on. I think we've only had like one or two other fans on thus far, and we'd love to have more of you. It would make us very happy. Oh, and one last thing I wanted to mention is you can also check me out on Letterboxd if you want to keep up with me and make sure that I'm alive. Like I said, I won't be doing anything when Yoshimitsu and I are on that retreat from July 2nd to 12th, so don't expect anything then. Um, I'll post film reviews on there. Maybe not daily, but like occasionally, maybe a few a week. Sometimes it'll posting a review doesn't always mean that I'll have seen that movie that week, but just that I'll have remembered it and wanted to write a review on it. Um, you can also check out Geeks and Games on YouTube, which will contain a playlist of videos that we've mentioned thus far on the channel. I'll probably include some complete playthroughs of all of the Rhythm Heaven series just to give you an idea of what the series itself is like. And if you want to send us questions or suggestions, not through the Discord server, you can do that by sending us an email at geeksandgamespodcast at gmail.com, geeksandgamespodcast, all lowercase. Um, and that is it for this episode. But before we go, I would like to say there you still have a chance to vote for not the next episode of Geeks and Films, but the next next episode. So it appears Lego Batman movie is winning because aside from just the online poll, I also pulled family members and other fans of the show I know in person and it appears that that one will be winning if you don't want that if you want Shrek to be our um next next episode or Despicable Me you can do you can vote for that but otherwise the next episode will be the start of our MCU podcast um well our MCU adventure um series on the show so we'll be covering Iron Man 1 and The Incredible Hulk and we'll have a guest on for that but yeah, anyway, that'll be it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. It's nice to be back for season two. And um, bye.